Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and welcome to a brand new week of Money Talk. It's Monday the 12th of June. I'm Peter Lewis and thank you for making this podcast one of the most listened to finance and investment podcasts in Hong Kong. Last week on Apple Podcasts, we reached number seven in the rankings of the most listened to finance shows. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk in your favourite podcast app. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, former US President Donald Trump has been indicted by a federal grand jury over the mishandling of classified documents, making him the first former president to face charges brought by the federal government. Consumer price inflation remained close to zero in China and factory gate deflation deepened, plunging by the most in seven years. China's annual consumer price inflation rates edged up 0.2% in May from April's 26-month low of 0.1%. China's factory gate deflation deepened. Producer prices, which measure the price of raw materials and goods leaving factories, fell 4.6% compared with a 3.6% drop in April. It was the eighth straight month of producer deflation and the steepest fall since February 2016. The US and five of its major allies condemned economic coercion and non-market policies regarding trade and investment in a joint declaration Friday that didn't single out other countries but appeared to be aimed at China. Australia, Britain, Canada, Japan and New Zealand jointly released the statement with the United States, emphasising that trade-related economic coercion and non-market-orientated policies and practices threaten the multilateral trading system and harms relations between countries. Reuters is reporting that US Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to China this week for long-delayed talks aimed at stabilising tense relations, and a US official said is expected to be there on June the 18th. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management and Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Providing a view from mainland China will be Shanghai-based independent economist Andy Share. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street Friday, US stocks reached a 10-month high as investors looked ahead to inflation data tomorrow and the Federal Reserve's latest policy announcement this week. The S&P 500 ended the day up 0.1% at 4,299, touching the 4,300 level intraday for the first time since August 2022. The gain pushed the blue chip stock index deeper into bull market territory as it rose 20.2% above its most recent low in October. However, trading was muted as investors showed caution ahead of this week's Fed meeting. Trading in the S&P was the lowest daily trading volume since October 2022. The Dow traded up 43 points or 0.1%, closing at 33,877. It was the Dow's fourth consecutive positive day. And the Nasdaq Composites rose 0.2% to end at 13,259. On a weekly basis, the S&P 500 rose 0.4% to record its fourth consecutive weekly winning streak. The Dow gained 0.3% over the five sessions. The Nasdaq Composite was up 0.1% over the same period for its seventh consecutive week of gains. The CBOE Volatility Index, or VIX, hits 13.5, its lowest level, since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic three years ago. The Fed is expected to hold off on it raising interest rates on Thursday morning, marking the first pause in its 14-month endeavour to tame inflation. 
Traders are pricing 70% odds of no change in June, but in July, there's a 70% chance of at least another 25 basis points increase. The yield on the two-year Treasury note, which is sensitive to rate expectations, rose 8 basis points to 4.6%. The US dollar fell for the second week in a row, losing half a percent, while Brent crude oil settled at the low of the session Friday, down 1.5% at $74.79 a barrel. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index rose 91 points, or half a percent, to near a two-week high of 19,390. The index chalked up a 2.3% gain for the week, the most since May the 4th. And this morning, the Hang Seng is projected to open 90 points lower. That's about half a percent. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index climbed 0.6% to 3,231, almost recouping all of its losses from the previous week. Last week, the Shenzhen component touched a seven-month low, and Shenzhen's tech-heavy Chinex hit a three-year low. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us, as always, on a Monday morning, Alex Wong, Director of Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Hi, morning, Peter. And also joining us, Carlos Casanova, who's Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Morning, Carlos. Very good morning. Consumer price inflation remained close to zero in China in May in a further sign of sluggish demand across the mainland economy. And factory gate deflation deepened, plunging by the most in seven years. China's annual consumer price inflation rate edged up 0.2% in May from April's 26-month low of 0.1%, but that was below market estimates of 0.3%. On a monthly basis, consumer prices dropped by 0.2%, the fourth straight month of declines, compared with estimates of a fall of 0.1%. And China's factory gate deflation deepened. Producer prices fell 4.6% compared with a 3.6% drop in April and compared with the economist's forecasts of a 4.3% fall. And that was the eighth straight month of producer deflation and the steepest fall in more than seven years. So Alex and Carlos, not much sign of inflation there, is there? In fact, zero consumer price inflation and deflation on the producer price front. What's it, uh, what should we take of this? I think it means uh, the China economy actually is worse than expected. So uh, we are seeing uh, weak demand from consumers and also probably... Uh, during the COVID period, uh, uh, manufacturers have relocated some of their uh, manufacturing facilities outside China. So that is also affecting the um, manufacturing activities in China as well. And also, of course, uh, the commodity prices have come down a little bit and also that have helped to depress the uh, PPI. Yeah, I agree. We are seeing sort of that um, trend across the world, right? It's not only in China. We are seeing weaker food and energy prices um, weighing on the headline figures. Of course, in China, these are much lower than than in other parts of the world. Um, but core inflation sort of remaining higher than headline CPI in, in many economies around the world, and China is no exception. Um, the demand has been quite weak. There's been a rebound in, in demand for consumption of services, of course, post-reopening, but demand for things like housing, cars, white goods, um, and, and, and goods that are not related to consumption of services. So, of course, makeup is up a lot because people are going out more to restaurants and bars. Um, but nobody is really buying computers, cameras, um, mm. uh, and, and motorcycles. So that remains very weak, and, and we are seeing um, sort of that translate into very sluggish inflation. We do think that on the 
consumer front, um, we might have reached a, a, a bottom. So we are going to likely see a very slow and gradual increase in inflation in the months ahead. I think the consensus is 1.2 for this year, so it's not a crazy rebound uh, by no means. But what worries me more and what also has m more serious implications for the global economy is the producer price inflation um, actually decli declining so much. Um, so firstly, it means that there is significant uh, weakness in the manufacturing sector, and that is never good from an economic recovery standpoint because you have sluggish uh, investment by corporates as they reduce their capex to try to lower their, their headline costs and also slower job creation, which is something that they are going to have to think about over the summer months. Um, so it looks like uh, it, it complicates the picture for the economic recovery. And of course, um, for the rest of the world, it means that China is already exporting deflation. Never mind what happens on the consumer front. What matters is PPI in terms of US CPI, um, which is also this week. So I think China is already exporting deflation. And that's something investors are looking at as well. Why, why is it? I mean, Yi Gang was saying that a large part of this is because of falling commodity prices. Um, why is PPI so weak in China compared to the rest of the world, given the rest of the world is also affected by the same commodity prices? But here we have a deflation, don't we? Quite, uh, quite rampant deflation. Why the big difference? In my opinion, there's uh, two factors that are driving this decline in PPI. First of all, we are seeing a slowdown in external demand. So we are seeing exports to key markets um, in the US and also Asia last month was negative double digits. So we are seeing falling external demand. Naturally, the manufacturing sector contracts as a result and you have um, excess capacity in some, in some areas. So, so we are going to see a contraction. The other factor is, of course, the domestic investment side is also weak. So typically, a lot of these uh, manufactured goods, things like, uh, you know, metal steel products would go into the construction of housing and infrastructure, and that is not happening um, at a, a very high rate. So you are seeing a contraction in manufacturing. So if we combine all the data together that we've seen over the recent week or so, this inflation data, um, the trade data that we had um, last week, seems to suggest the economy is calling quite rapidly, doesn't it? Much faster than people thought. Yeah, so I think uh, that's why the market is expecting some uh, policy support from the government right now already. So we are probably may see some more aggressive cuts in, 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 in rates in China to try to boost the economy. Yeah, I agree with Alex. Why not so far, though? They've been quite reluctant to do it, haven't they? They... they um they haven't cut the triple R yet, and they, they certainly haven't cut interest rates. They seem to prefer credit tools to try and sort of boost the economy rather than targeting interest rates. Why are they so reluctant? Um, if, can I be a little bit controversial? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Please. So we, we, we had actually more pressure on the economy last year, and Igang held from implementing more stimulus in spite of calls by the then Premier Li Keqiang to do easing. Um, so with Li, uh, Li Keqiang, sorry, with Li Qiang now as the Premier, um, I think there is less um, sort of discordance in terms of the discourse. Um, and so it is less likely that they are going to do broad-based rate cuts um, as a result of this. I think um, PBOC has to juggle uh, three different priorities, uh, stabilizing inflation, stabilizing growth, but also reducing risks in the financial sector. And those those objectives conflict with each other. So I don't know how Higang is sleeping at night. He has a very difficult job uh, right now. Um, and so in that sort of environment, it's natural for him to always lean on the side 
err on the side of being more cautious and doing more targeted support. Um, the sequential slowdown in Q2 is, is quite obvious. I don't even think they have to wait until Q2 data is out. They will see it this week with um, uh, activity indicators for May. And that should be enough for them to be slightly more aggressive. So triple R cuts would probably probably be his preferred option. He did mention in, in March that he would consider another triple R cut. Um, but because there's this ov- overhang of uh, reducing risks in the financial sector, all of the concerns around local government uh, debt, um, I think they're going to be quite restrained from a top-down perspective in terms of delivering that final rate cut, which is what all of us investors mm-hmm. are sort of hoping and waiting to see. Yeah, but it's been a long time coming because they haven't changed uh, interest rates for quite a long time. Would it make much of a difference anyway? Is, is that really the solution to, to China's economic woes at the moment? I think in the meantime, uh, they are trying to cut the deposit rates uh, more aggressively and try to induce uh, uh, investment from local citizens. So I think uh, that's the strategy right now because uh, the Chinese actually are sitting on a lot of uh, deposits. So uh, that's why they want to channel those deposits into investment or into equities uh, or or even rates, I think. So this is uh, the probably the safer rates uh, to to, to try to um, cope with this current situation. Mm. Carlos, you mentioned that um, the risk is that this deflation gets exported around the world, and you you indicated sort of that that there are signs that that is happening already now. You think that that is um, that's going to be the case, and this is going to reduce the inflationary pressure in the US and the eurozone and elsewhere. One hundred percent. I think you are seeing already downside pressures. I mean, we're coming from a very high base, so it's not directly comparable, but we are seeing downside pressures on headline CPI numbers in the US and Europe. Um, and that reflects both the fact that China is exporting deflation, but also there's been a rotation in terms of demand away from goods and towards services. So the only thing that is really driving sticky inflation in developed markets is uh, wages and uh, positive spillovers that these have on services. Um, but of course, in markets like the U.S., um, if there's a down cycle in terms of economic activity, um, you know, employment and wages tend to move very quickly. Um, so I think it's uh, it's a tail risk that uh, we need to monitor whether or not uh, this is going mm-hmm. to translate into a perhaps a faster than expected uh, correction in inflation. But by by all means, the baseline uh, sort of scenario in most for most banks is that um, you are going to still see this resilience in the labor market pushing services, but on the goods front, definitely definitely helping with uh, downside pressures from China. What do you make of the six state banks last week cutting their uh, their deposit rates by what was about 10 to 15 basis points, wasn't it? Two, two-year deposit rates fell 10 basis points, three- and five-year time deposits by 15 basis points. Is that going to have any major impact? Well, as, as Alex mentioned, um, they are being more, much more targeted and they're trying to hit the balance sheet of households. We've all seen the statistics about the pandemic surpluses that have built within households. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, in the current environment, uh, households are very hesitant to deploy um, those savings because there is uncertainty. And there are also no good alternatives. Traditionally, Chinese households are very exposed to real estate. The expectations that's going to be very sluggish. Um, Chinese equities are not really taking off. Um, a lot of concerns in the bond market still with the developers. Um, and so there's nowhere to really to, to, to plonk that money, really. So they are going to have to be very, very strategic, very targeted, very bottom up, um, and try to find ways to deploy those uh, buffers um, in, 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 in meaningful 
in a meaningful way that actually triggers economic activity. So I think um, in the very short term, the impact of the um, deposit rate cut is going to be quite muted. It might take a few months. But remember, they are not doing this in isolation. They're also simultaneously reducing some of the macroprudential rules for home ownership in second and third tier cities. They're also boosting demand for EVs, boosting demand for household goods. So they're going about it in a much more pragmatic, uh, bottom-up manner. And it's going to be difficult for us to track sort of the scale of the stimulus package because it's going to be so scattered. Well, let's see uh, what, what the impact is on the markets. Let's let's stick with here with, with China, um, first of all. Obviously, it's going to be an important week, isn't it, for, for markets yeah. with, with the Fed meeting. We've also got U.S. inflation data today. There was an interesting um, comment from the stock market regulator on Friday. They want to encourage a new bull market in stocks by encouraging investors to turn to long-term value um, investing. Yi Human, who's chairman of the China Securities Regulation Commission, said that at the Luzhou Forum in, in Shanghai. And he wants to encourage funds to increase their equity allocation. So I sort of Alex took this as him basically saying um, invest in state-owned companies. <laughs> is, yeah, right. is, is that what he means? I think uh, uh, if you talk about value, then in China probably you are talking about SOEs. So uh, because uh, those uh, private enterprises actually are not too cheap in China in the Asian market, uh, but in Hong Kong they are quite cheap. But uh, people, I think, uh, would not like to invest in tech companies in China because. Uh, they lack the big AI firms, I think, because uh, AI probably in China would be limited by the uh, chips technologies and also uh, the potential risk of government regulating. So I think uh, they they are talking about the SOEs, and we are seeing continuous strength in the uh, telecom sectors and also the uh, petrol 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 sector. But I uh, but probably we would see uh, renewed strength in the banking sectors in in in, in the equity markets because. Uh, uh, we are seeing uh, cuts in deposit rates uh, already. So uh, if those uh, residents are not are not uh, moving their, their 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 deposit into equities, at least uh, the banks will benefit from uh, improving margins. And also for many, at least for many Hong Kong companies, actually they are they are more keen to borrow renminbi uh, now because mm-hmm. uh, this is much lower than Hong Kong dollar uh, uh, lending rate and also US dollar. So uh, we are probably seeing some quality. Uh, borrower coming out uh, from outside as well because the uh, actually is a, is a cheaper to borrow right now and also the exchange risk actually is uh, not that high. So I think uh, the, um, the the overall scenario would be uh, better for those uh, banks and probably it would lead to the index uh, to stabilize because uh, at least the banks are, are quite an important part in, in the Asia index and also in, 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 in the Hong Kong market as well. If you go back to the beginning of the year, the, the the bet on China has probably been the biggest mistake that sort of analysts have made, haven't they, in the, in the markets? So many people were calling for a bullish run in uh, in China, which really just hasn't worked out um, uh, at all. But are you getting signs that maybe now is the time? It, it was the wrong, just the wrong time at the beginning of the year. I think you still need to focus on SOEs because uh, uh, I don't think uh, the uh, private enterprises uh, would, would benefit much. Uh, as I've said, uh, the, the right now the global firm is AI, and people probably would be more comfortable in investing in uh, in other Asian uh, semiconductors companies because of the ties with the US. And then uh, for platform companies, I think uh, people would not be very confident that the Chinese one would be able to compete with the um, with the global ones uh, eventually, because uh, they probably will be limited by chips and also be limited by the uh, government regulations. So uh, the ultimate uh, upside in Chinese tax actually would not be that high. So that's why I think uh, Chinese private enterprises probably will underperform. But uh, for SOEs, they are not 
expensive at all because uh, uh, they have been underperforming the, uh, the, 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 the overall global markets for maybe, maybe 10 to 15 years already. Mm. And they are, they, are, they are offering good dividends. Uh, of course, they are quite short-sighted because uh, the KPI for them are dividend ROEs. So probably they would not have too much interest in, in, in investing uh, uh, aggressively to, to catch up with the tax. Because in the U.S., people don't care about short-term earnings that much. Uh, if you look at NVIDIA, people care about the ultimate dominance in, the, in, the, in, in their respective industries only. So they are not caring about the, the, the high valuations right now. But uh, in China, uh, SOEs actually are more concerned about the um, short-term performance. So probably that would limit the, 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 the upside eventually as well. But I think uh, people will feel more comfortable in, in investing in SOEs. Actually, this year, if you put your money in Chinese telecoms companies, you probably at least uh, you've got 30% plus uh, return mm. on, on those uh, three companies. So that is not bad, actually, as compared to other markets. Um, Carlos, what, what all the economic data that we've had, what does this mean for the yuan? Because that's been weakening as well, hasn't it? Um, and we're down maybe about 3% now, I think, uh, on the Chinese yuan this year. But what does it do for the outlook for the currency? Well, in the, in the near term, we are expecting yuan depreciation. We have a strong dollar still. Um, we have a widening policy differential with the U.S., um, and we have concerns about a uh, growth slowdown in the second quarter. So we are expecting that uh, number to potentially um, head higher towards 7.2, um, which is, uh, it's, it is, you know, weaker than what we had expected at the beginning of the year. There's also been some changes around the U.S. dollar view, I think, globally. Uh, and so that's playing a big role. Um, in the second half, uh, depending on when we expect to see uh, deceleration materialize in the U.S., um, we could see some marginal um, appreciation of the UN towards, uh, you know, 7, 6, 6.9 in that range. Um, but of course, uh, against the basket of currencies, uh, the UN, you know, will, will not appreciate uh, meaningfully this year because um, they, they intervened so heavily in the market last year. We, it, it's going to be much easier for other Asian currencies to outperform. So we, we are looking at a sort of slight depreciation and enrangement for the second half of the year. And what about Chinese bonds? Foreign investors have pulled out quite a lot of money now from Chinese bonds, $7.2 billion worth in uh, in May, and that was after $10 billion uh, withdrawn from them uh, in the previous month in, uh, in April. Yields on the three-year bond, they're down about 38 basis points from near the end of January. What's the outlook for Chinese bonds? I think uh, still weak demand because of the foreign have been hurt uh, over the last two years in investing in Chinese bonds. I think uh, th that kind of psychology would still remain in the market. And also, uh, people probably would not feel good about the uh, recovery prospects of the Chinese property markets as well, because uh, Chinese actually are uh, the, 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 the birth rate is low and, and the marriage rate is, is low, so the long-term demand actually is not uh, that high, and people are talking about the the, the, the the successions of uh, several feds uh, from 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 the seniors uh, for Chinese residents right now already, so the long term outlook actually is not that good for that sector, and then uh, for manufacturing companies as well, I think uh, people would not feel too good uh, about lending money to them, so uh, probably we need to see a uh, a, a new 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 sectors uh, in in China to come out for to, to lend money. Otherwise, I think uh, the bond market for Chinese actually would be quite bad. Now, obviously, it's an important week in the US. We've got uh, the Fed meeting. We'll get their decision in the early hours of Thursday morning, Hong Kong time. Before that, we have got inflation data coming out tomorrow. 
Um, Carlos and Alex, I'm, I'm sort of a little bit surprised in some ways that the Fed has rolled out all of these officials talking about um, a pause in rates this month, which they were doing before they saw the jobs data last week, which didn't really help their case. And also, of course, depending upon what the inflation data says tomorrow, they may end up in the situation where they've got to change tack, haven't they? And, and maybe think about raising rates further because inflation isn't um, getting anywhere close to their target. Inflation is, um, I think they have better visibility than they did a few months ago um, with regards to the trajectory of for inflation in the coming months. And I think that's perhaps emboldened the Fed to come out and, um, you know, be a bit more dovish, uh, propose this uh, hawkish pause in June um, with the outlook to potentially do another 25 basis point rate hike in July. Um, certainly that's what the market is pricing at this uh, point in time. But you are in, indeed correct. If there is a significant surprise uh, with CPI numbers this week, I think they will have to shift gears um, as they've also left the door open for another 25 basis point rate hike. So they could do it um, earlier. They could do it um, They could do it in, in June instead of in July. But um, given what we are seeing with headline inflation across the board in DMs with um, you know, goods being slower, services still, uh, you know, resilient. I, I think they might still have enough um, arguments there to, to hold this month. Do you find it slightly odd that they're, they're, what they're really saying is that next month we're going to raise rates um, because, um, you know, we still haven't gone far enough in taming inflation, um, but we, we, we're, we're sort of going all out to make it clear that this pause in June is not the end of the rate hiking cycle. It's just a skip, if you like. That's uh, that's their words. But why would you do that? If you know that you're behind the curve on inflation so that you're going to have to do it next month, why wait until next month? What, what, what will they find out next month that they don't know already? Why, why not just do it right now? Uh, I think uh, this is a bit odd, but uh, anyway, I think uh, the, the the inflation actually probably would be picking because uh, we are seeing uh, weakness in commodity markets already. Hmm. So what is resilient is, uh, like Carlos said, uh, is the uh, labor market. So I think uh, they do have some uh, room to to wait, and and probably uh, since they are so data dependent, so uh, in July probably they would would would, would change some stance on 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 some weaker unemployment data. So who knows? So I think uh, uh, that's why they are doing this. We could see a more divided Fed than we've seen before, though, couldn't we? No, normally they've been pretty unanimous on what they want to do, but there's definitely some some hawks there on the uh, on the voting FOMC. Yeah, the communication is going to be confusing even if they pause. We are going to see a very mixed uh, tone coming out of the Fed, and that's going to throw the market off, which is possibly what they want. I think forward guidance isn't really serving them well uh, right now. So throwing investors off a little bit is possibly a good thing for the market. So what does this mean for, for U.S. stocks in Alex? They're, they're at a 10-month high yep. um, now, the S&P 500. But there are signs now, aren't there, of this... Um, outperformance of uh, tech stocks over value stocks sort of reversing. We saw the Russell 2000, um, it's, it notched a weekly gain of about 2% last week. It looks like there seems to be a rotation going on. Uh, but that rotation actually is weak. I think uh, people are still quite keen for the big AI firms. If you look at Adobe, actually, they, they just uh, lay out some plans on AI, then the shares just break out on the upside uh, very strongly. So uh, the, the, the AI firms sector are playing out. And I think uh, people would still be very confident on on several big stocks like Apple, Tesla, Nvidia, and and 
and Microsoft, I think. These four actually would be the representatives of four firms, uh, the, the AI infrastructure, the AI platform, the consumer electronics, and the EVs. So these four leading companies, I think, uh, would be the supporter of the uh, of the of the Nasdaq uh, right now, and probably uh, those uh, companies which uh, those software companies uh, probably would uh, also catch up uh, on the AI films. So I think tech probably will still be the leader. So we are seeing some spillover into values, but uh, if if the uh, but the values sectors actually would be uh, more dependent on the way outlook. So uh, that is not like AI film because AI film the story is too big and people would not care about the interest rate outlook. So I think uh, eventually the, the the market will still be led by uh, technologies right now. And can they outperform any more? I mean, they're already those four stocks are about what twenty five percent of the of the S and P five hundred. It seems like something somewhere else has got to catch up. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, but uh, I think uh, that four films actually uh, would be the the very big film for the next ten years. So uh, we are talking about AI's uh, infrastructures building, AI AI platform, uh, consumer electronics. I think people underestimated uh, Apple's uh, Vision Pro. I think uh, that probably would be the next uh, growth uh, driver for next Apple for in the next ten years. And then tax are uh, probably uh, would be more valid right now because people talk about their their grid. So. Uh, I think this four actually would still be strong, but if you look at matters, Amazon and Google, I think uh, probably they would not be doing too much. Uh, but anyway, I think uh, people are now more bullish on the uh, software companies when, uh, already, so mm. uh, probably that would help another wave of uh, uh, upside in, in, in Nasdaq because of the uh, renewed interest in the software uh, companies in, in, in the AI uh, 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 futures. Although I think uh, that probably will support the Nasdaq to, to, to the, in the next uh, probably six months. And what about the regional banking stocks? When we had this sort of crisis a few weeks ago, there were concerns that it was going to impact credit conditions and that would start to slow down the economy. Four to five weeks later, is that still a concern? Are we seeing signs of that? Yes, there is still a concern. But I think that concern would not be a big factor in the market. Probably they would have limited impact. So I think uh, SMEs probably would be affected by that. But uh, in the stock market, actually, uh, the stock market is dominated by big, big companies. So that would not have to have too much impact on the uh, overall market. So uh, I think they would uh, have a polarized impact. So uh, people would not be too keen in investing in small companies because of that credit crunch created by the problem in, in regional banks. But for the financial sector, I think people would feel more comfortable in buying uh, those companies which are uh, big or which are depressed, but uh, they probably have uh, the uh, resilience to come through this crisis. So uh, probably we are seeing uh, some polarized, polarized performance in the financial sector as well. Carlos, are you seeing signs in the economy at all of, of that happening, of there being a credit crunch? Hmm. Well, the structural factors that led to this credit crunch in the first place, meaning this big differential between money market rates and deposit rates in the U.S., remain. So likely, um, you know, the regional banks are not off the hook. We are still expecting um, pressures. Um, Fed liquidity injections have helped um, to smooth out any concerns in the short term, but of course that liquidity has to be um, removed at some point. So we are expecting to see credit conditions tighten in the U.S., I think Alex is right. Um, the sh- in the short term, that's not going to impact the big companies, but um, it is going to impact um, households through the real estate sector um, at regional level. And so that will o- eventually trickle um, to-, to the big stocks uh, if you see a, mater- a material decline in U.S. activity. So I think um, we are looking at a sort of couple of quarters um, uh, impact, um, not-, not immediately, but it is a factor that remains in play. 
Well, thank you both very much. You heard there Carlos Casanova, who is Senior Asia Economist at UBP. Alex Wong, who is Director of Alex K.Y. Wong Asset Management. I'm joined now by Shanghai-based independent economist Andy Sher. Morning, Andy. Good morning, Peter. Um, let me get your thoughts, first of all, on this uh, inflation data that we had out of the mainland on uh, Friday. Consumer price inflation, it's pretty close to zero, isn't it? And producer prices um, are in deflation. What is this telling you about the state of the mainland economy? Well, uh, I, I think that the issue is uh, China has uh, uh, experienced, uh, always has uh, over overcapacity. So uh, now well, commodity prices uh, uh, have come down a bit. So I think that uh, uh, we have uh, this uh, price adjustment. And uh, obviously the property sector is deflating and that has a knock-on effect. So I, I, I think that uh, it's not necessary deflation in the sense that money supply is contracting. M2 is growing, still growing at, at 12%. So I'm, I'm not sure that that is the case. It's really about the some of the quirks in the real economy. So is, is it a concern? Should we be worried um, when you see producer price deflation? Or uh, as you're saying here, it's not because of money supply. Um, it's because of other sort of, if you like, structural factors in the economy. Yeah, there is a global demand issue, right? Exports are down in uh, in May, and China uh, really expanded production capacity during the pandemic, when businesses uh, didn't have a lot to do, and they focused on upgrading to uh, so-called 5G and AI-assisted manufacturing, and that really massively expanded the production capacity. Mm. So, uh, and uh, the. Uh, uh, and China really wants to supply to the whole world, and uh, the, uh, but uh, we we have uh, demand uh, cooling down because people in the West are not getting helicopter money from their governments anymore, and they overordered the electronics during the pandemic, and half of China's exports are electronics, so we do have. Uh, 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 some sort of a, a downturn here. So, so what is it then that's going to um, prompt the, the Chinese economy into growing? If exports to the rest of the world are slowing because the global economy is slowing, if consumer depart- demand on the mainland is, is weak, the property de- um, sector still hasn't recovered, where is the growth going to come from? Well, I think China's focus is not on growth anymore. It's just uh, you, you, you lived there. What, what, what's the harm, right? So, uh, uh, you know, the labor market is uh, it's very tight and uh, college graduates cannot find uh, good white-collar jobs, uh, which uh, 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 that problem cannot be solved by growth. China's growth is driven mm. by manufacturing and the construction that, they, that don't create a lot of white car jobs. So, in in the, in the sense that uh, China, uh, uh, what China should do is uh, really restructuring, balancing the economy, don't invest so much, and shift the money to the household sector to create uh, to to boost consumption, which the, the government doesn't like to do. So, uh, so what we're going to see is uh, Chinese exports would uh, would become cheaper, and uh, and then uh, uh, a lot of business elsewhere will go under. So, uh, Chinese exports will expand the market this year. So, the global economy needs to go through this kind of adjustment, and uh, and the more demand for Chinese goods. 
So does that mean then that people are going to be disappointed if they're expecting stimulus, if the focus is not going to be on growth, um, but it's going to be on restructuring, then there isn't really the need for things like triple R cuts or interest rate cuts, is there? No, they never worked before. Yeah, I think monetary policy used to uh, kind of fuel property speculation. Mm. Uh, and there is, I believe, a political decision not to do that anymore. Uh, the property sector is basically done. And it's on its own. So uh, I, I think the uh, the economy is going to be very slow. We do have a, a, a bounce in the service sector, uh, probably 7 to 8%. And the manufacturing so far is still growing. It's, it's a slowly. It's still growing. So uh, uh, so but you, you end of the year with a, with, uh, a low, low, at the low end, you have uh, maybe a 5%. At the, at the top end, you have 6% growth rate. So it, it's not good for uh, after three years of a uh, pandemic. And so it means a week. So next year, there will be a bigger challenge. There's no low base effect anymore. So mm-hmm. I think that the government is going to take it easy this year. Maybe next year, they'll think of something. Well, then um, equity analysts are going to be pretty disappointed, aren't they? Because they are almost unanimous in calling for more stimulus in the form of rate cuts, triple R cuts. And, um, you know, most analysts were been pretty wrong on the Chinese markets. If you go back to the beginning of the year, they had pretty optimistic forecasts. And instead, we've seen the MSCI China down almost uh, 20 percent. Sounds like they're going to be disappointed further. Yeah, we, we had uh, this massive rally uh, in uh, 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 in the last quarter of last year, and uh, that was not based on fundamentals. Uh, and it was uh, so. What what we're seeing is that uh, uh, handing back that uh, that uh, that increase. So, uh, uh, no, but I, I I think the issue with the Chinese stock market has never been economic growth. Mm. It's the overcapacity, excessive competition. So you look at the Chinese stock market over the last twenty uh, twenty years. Uh, it hasn't done much, but uh, the economy is up 10 times. So mm. uh, the issue is, uh, is really about the structure of the economy that does not favor return on capital. So if, if it, and it doesn't favor really shareholder rights, does it either, or, or shareholder returns? There isn't really a focus on that um, at all. The, the central government, I don't think, likes the idea at all of returning profits um, to shareholders or doing share buybacks or increasing dividends. I, I think that uh, obviously, from the government's perspective, its goal is uh, make the country rich and strong, and uh, and uh, it's not about making shareholders uh, rich. And uh, that apparently is East Asian story. You look at what happened in Japan; uh, the people investing Japanese stock market over. Uh, this spectacular uh, increase from the uh, 1950s over the last uh, over, over the next half a century, and basically didn't make a lot of money. So, uh, and uh, you look at Taiwan, you look at Korea, East Asian model because that it's got they, uh, they have high savings rates. They have savings. Mm. They like to mobilize savings to to boost up uh, production capacity. That means that there's, a, there's a overcapacity, a lot of competition. Return on capital is not great. So what do you make of the support measures that the government has, has recently announced, getting state banks to cut their rates on deposits? It's also coming up with support measures for the property markets. Do you think they're going to work? Are they going to be any better than that 15-point plan that they had back in November? Oh, from the, in, terms of for the, in terms of the deposit rate, Chinese households want to pay down their debts early. 
So you you cut it to positive rates. They they have no incentives to do that. They will not. They don't have a lot of incentives to go out to spend money because、mm. they did not make money during the three years of pandemic, and they need to reaccumulate. So this is、uh, something you cannot overcome. You or to stimulate consumption, you must boost their disposable income by cutting taxes, maybe cutting all these contributions to so-called social welfare funds. Okay, so、uh, these welfare funds account for half of the labor cost. You look at the the big thing, not the little thing like the deposit rate. So、mm-hmm. I don't think it's it has big impact. In、so、terms of the property sector, it's it's really oversupply. There's not much you can do. It's the oversupply is overwhelming. Ten billion square meters under construction. Seven in、uh, in the, the in the residential sector. And the 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 commercial and office、uh, sector is basically collapsing,、mm. and there's a lot of debt over there. You know, you know, so it's a pretty serious crisis.、And、the household sector does not really like、uh, in Chinese households don't dump their properties; they held on,、uh, wishing that the prices would come back. So the the market does not adjust、uh, rapidly. But there is a, a full full on uh, uh, crisis in. The commercial sector. So, if you need to boost、um, household savings, household income, would consumption vouchers work in the way that we've seen them in Hong Kong?、Mm. Uh, yeah, how much?、Uh, the Chinese government doesn't like to give out cash.、Mm. So uh, uh, we saw that the, the, the local governments gave out some consumption vouchers, really tiny, very tiny, little.、Mm. So、uh, it's really for publicity. So Chinese government like wants money. You look at most local governments now. Uh, really short of money because、uh, they couldn't sell land like before.、Mm. So uh, uh, most governments are in in in、uh, in, uh, in in financial some kind of financial、uh, distress. The only way、uh, if you want to improve the situation, the central government has to issue bonds to sell to the household sector at high interest rate. High interest rate, then people instead of paying down the debts, they will buy your bonds. Then you maybe you can you use spend that money、uh, to maybe prop up some local governments that、mm. are basically going under. Where does Hong Kong fit in? Where does the economy here fit in? Sort of caught between China, which is、uh, weakening, and and the West, which is also seeing a slowdown in demand. So, what does this mean for the Hong Kong economy? The first is Hong Kong does not have. A, As、uh, an independent, independent international economy, not like、uh, Taiwan or Singapore, Hong Kong, everything is about the mainland. So,、uh, so,、uh, so, forget about talking about Hong Kong as an international financial center. It's so this is uh, uh, just wrong. The,、uh, the, and the other is、uh, that, but、uh, the, the problem with Hong Kong is that、uh, Hong Kong. Uh, 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 ben uh, basically was doing two things for many years. One was、uh, raising money for the,、uh, the 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 Chinese for Chinese companies, and and also kind of、uh, getting money from China for like, kind of uh, uh, speculation, whatever. So the, these things boosted the financial sector, and also Chinese money coming to buy properties. So、uh, on the monetary side,、uh, that 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 that. Any if Hong Kong is booming or whatever, whatever you are talking about these three things. Or the other is that uh, uh, the the、uh, the tourism sector, Chinese、uh, wanted to buy luxury goods, and uh, and uh, and uh, uh, mainland imposes twenty five percent tax on luxury goods. So Hong Kong is an arbitrage place, and、uh, and、uh, Chinese went there、uh, to 
to buy luxury goods. But uh, the, 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 this part is really going down because the Chinese, after three years of a pandemic, people really uh, have changed their priority. They don't want to buy a, an LV bag, spend $10,000 to buy an LV bag and stay in a terrible hotel and eat, eat instant noodles. You know, that, that, that thing is over. Mm. Now, so they, now they're going to Thailand and Malaysia uh, for a good time. You pay a little bit of money for a, to have a very good hotel room. You have beach, you have nice people, nice food, nice weather. And you, if you come to Hong Kong today, before you come, they double or triple the hotel rates. <laughs> and yes. the hotel hotel rooms are terrible, terrible, terrible. So, uh, <laughs> and then, then the people in China, in, in the mainland, are not used to it because the housing condition or hotels are much better than in Hong Kong. Mm. So this, this is the problem that Hong Kong doesn't have much to offer other than shopping. When people don't want to want to uh, uh, do shopping like before, so then Hong Kong is basically is is, is dead. So Hong Kong's economy is is uh, is not is going nowhere. And mm. and uh, now they want to uh, uh, reinvent itself. They want to pivot to technology. They want to uh, kind of uh, inv- uh, create these uh, tech research centers. I, I think that, to me, is laughable that Hong Kong will become a technology center. And why do you say that? You you think it's too late? For, is it too late for it to maybe... No, no, Hong Kong, is, uh, Hong Kong culture is very short term. Mm. It's all about a speculation. The, the reason why Hong Kong is the way it is is because of that. Mm. Because everything is about a speculation. And mm. everything is about uh, sucking money in to boost the property market price. Mm. So then uh, the money percolates down into the Hong Kong economy, but into the Hong Kong Kong household sector. And of course, the other thing is Hong Kong's um, led by US monetary policy. It's tied uh, to that through the peg. Now, you say that the uh, the Hong Kong currency pegged to the dollar is not sustainable. Why do you say that? The the reason is because uh, uh, Hong Kong does not have an independent international economy. It's just part of the mainland and and, and it makes a living by arbitraging its special status, i.e. low taxes. Okay, so uh, so uh, having a separate currency is is uh, uh, is not sustainable, and uh, of course, so far it's still hang on because the Chinese uh, RMB is has at least dirty float is is kind of linked to the dollar. But the issue going, you're looking forward. The dollar is not a stable currency because the U.S. has this vast fiscal deficit. This uh, even though the economy is not in a bad shape. And uh, it's a structural issue. So the U.S. fiscal deficit uh, uh, will be bigger and bigger. So 10% of GDP fiscal deficit is going to be a routine thing. You cannot expect this currency to be stable. So, so I- this is where... This is where that Hong Kong, uh, this, uh, this peg will become uh, negative for the Hong Kong's economy. So are you saying that um, what Hong Kong should do is it should abandon the U.S. dollar peg and peg the currency to the yuan? Or no, are you saying no. that Hong what Kong should, should happen is should have the Chinese Hong yuan? Hong Kong should not have its own dependent currency okay. at all. So you're not Hong saying we peg it. Just the IMB. Yeah. And IMB, once it leaves the border, is convertible. So you don't have convertibility issue. But it's not and, convertible uh, and, 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 now, though, uh, is it? It's not convertible yeah, now. That's the problem. It's not convertible inside China. It's convertible in Hong Kong. There's this offshore IMB component. Any IMB that goes, uh, uh, exits the border is convertible. Mm. There is this architecture of in, uh, offshore IMB that can banks can transmit, uh, can uh, can send to each other as a convertible currency. Mm. And the, the uh, China Central Bank has this offshore RMB 
uh, exchange rate, which can be a little bit different from on- onshore, but, but because of the foreign exchange reserves are still very vast, they can maintain the parity. Mm. So, uh, so it's not 100% safe, but uh, considering Hong Kong, China's foreign exchange reserves, uh, they have the ability to, to, to keep it. So, so you, you have the convertibility and you have the uh, RMB. Uh, stability. So, so going forward, you you have the benefit from both sides, and and also that a uh, global demand for RMB asset is growing. So, uh, uh, and RMB interest rate is is lower. So uh, now suddenly Hong Kong assets all become RMB assets. And when the central banks, uh, like uh, in the Middle East or in East Asia, when they want to ex- increase RMB exposure, and then Hong Kong is a natural place to to go to. So Hong Kong becomes effectively an international RMB center, and it's 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 it can ride this this trend and and have a second life. So I I think this is really the second. Uh, this is really uh, an opportunity for Hong Kong to reinvent itself. Pivoting to technology is just uh, kind of uh, burning some money uh, and uh, to 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 uh, to, uh, to have hope, right? To mm. buy hope. So uh, so this is something real, and it's it's it fits into Hong Kong strength. Hong Kong people like like to speculate, like to move money around. And here's another here's your chance mm. that uh, that RMB becomes international, and you try to uh, kind of. Uh, a uh, flock this to uh, to 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 foreigners to somebody from the Middle East or whatever. No, you 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 have a you have a you can you can do this job and and make yourself rich too. So just to be clear, then what you're saying, you're not saying that the peg is going to be broken through some speculative attack because there have been some funds who have been calling for that and they've been badly burned when they try it. What you're saying is that Hong Kong should voluntarily um, abandon that peg and adopt the, uh, the adopt the Chinese yuan as the as its currency. That's right. And it's, in terms of attacking Hong Kong dollar. No, uh, <clears throat> Uh, it's like uh, when the big shot in 99, uh, 1997 uh, in, in November on his private jet, you know, this big uh, macro fund guy and uh, called me, said, uh, do you think Hong Kong dollar should devalue? I said, yes. He said, do you think Hong Kong dollar, dollar will devalue? I said, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so basically, uh, and he didn't listen to me. He lost a lot of money, lost more money than anybody else in this attack mm-hmm. on Hong Kong dollar. But the issue is that uh, Hong Kong can let the interest rate rise. So, uh, <clears throat> so it, it, it's, 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 uh, and after this attack, Hong Kong has really tightened up its, its, its banking system. It's not so easy to borrow Hong Kong dollars anymore. Right, so you look at Hong Kong dollars balance in the cash balance in the banking system is tiny. It's tiny. If we are, if a, a, a hedge fund really want can borrow their money, the interest rate will go through the roof, and that's another vulnerability of uh, the peg right now. Because the Hong Kong interest rate is lower than the U.S. dollar interest rate, you either have to burn the foreign exchange reserves or you let the the cash balance to go down. Mm. And then right now, it's the latter. That means that it's really vulnerable to uh, uh, to uh, a spike in interest rate. And think mm. about how vulnerable Hong Kong's property market is. And that's everything for Hong Kong people. Mm. Well, Andy. So uh, the Hong Kong market, the property market could, could collapse. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's fascinating to hear this. I'd love to talk longer um, uh, about this with you, but uh, we've already had quite a long discussion and uh, we're running out of time, sadly. <laughs> but it's great talking to you, Andy, and hearing your thoughts on this. Yes, have a good day, Peter. Thank you, Andy. That's Shanghai-based independent economist, Andy Scher. Thank you for listening this morning. If you want more information on any of the stories we've discussed today, please take a look at my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Tomorrow on the show, I'll be joined by Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Pete Sweeney, financial columnist at Reuters, and from the USA, Tony Nash, founder of Complete Intelligence. See you tomorrow. Money Talk.